Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we're looking at population displacement. What drives it and what are its effects? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Displacement of civilian populations is a feature of politics in many parts of the world. War is perhaps the most familiar driver of displacement. We've seen that, of course, on a tragic scale in Ukraine in recent months. But other factors lead people to leave their homes too, including government development policies and the effects of climate change. And displacement also has profound effects on the people involved most directly, but also on the dynamics of conflict and of politics more broadly. While two of our doctoral students here in the UCL Department of Political Science are currently researching the politics of displacement in different contexts. Sigrid Weber focuses on how armed actors, including government and non-state forces, respond to population movements during civil war. And she focuses on the recent Islamic State conflict in Iraq as a case study. And Pasan Jayasinghe's work uses a longer time frame and explores the interconnected history of resettlement practices and electoral reform in Sri Lanka. I'm delighted to say that Sigrid and Pasan both join me now and welcome both of you to UCL Uncovering Politics. So we're going to be talking about population displacement. But Pasan, before we get going on that, your research focuses, as I said, on Sri Lanka and you're currently actually in Sri Lanka, which, as many listeners will be aware has very much been in the news recently for for very unfortunate reasons. There have been weeks of protests prompted by economic crisis. The government has collapsed. Last week, the country defaulted on its debt. So, Pasan, before we get going, I thought it would be interesting to hear from you just how does life there actually feel at the moment? Hi, Alan. Uh, It's great to join you today. Yeah, uh, Sri Lanka's uh, going through quite a difficult time at the moment. The country's been affected by a very severe economic crisis. Um, it's running out of uh, foreign exchange reserves and as a result has been unable to purchase continuous supplies of uh, fuel, so gas, petrol and diesel, as well as other basic supplies, uh, including medicine. And uh, the associated uh, spiraling inflation has uh, sent food prices skyrocketing the fuel shortage has also impacted the power supply. So there's rolling power cuts um, across the country on most days. And all this is obviously making uh, the lives of Sri Lankans uh, extremely difficult on a day-to-day basis. And they've also been the driver behind continuous anti-government protests for several months now. And the protests themselves and their intensification over time has been driving a political crisis as well. Um, So they led to uh, the dissolution of the government about two weeks ago. A new government has been appointed since then. And the the protests, despite this continuing, because uh, their main call is for the president, Gautabe Rajapaksa, to resign, and he continues to uh, hold on to power. And as long as he does, the political crisis will roll on. And uh, alongside the effects of the economic crisis, that's making the lives of uh, Sri Lankans extremely unstable and also causing, obviously, a lot of hardship, uh, particularly for the most vulnerable Sri Lankans, which includes um, people from the working class and the poor. Mm. 
Mm. Well, we wish you all the best, Pasan, and the best to all in Sri Lanka at the moment. And of course, for our short-term immediate activities, we hope that the uh, the line to, to Sri Lanka will hold up for recording this podcast episode. So let's focus in now on displacement, our theme for this week. And could I begin just by asking both of you why you got interested in studying displacement in the first place? What was it that you were seeing happening in the world that made you think, gosh, this is something that I want to study here? Uh, Sigrid, do you want to start us off? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I got into the study of forces placement relatively late, I think. And I remember in 2015, I was an intern at the European Parliament. And if you remember, this was the long summer of migration. So in, the, in this time, it became apparent that there's essentially a refugee protection crisis in, in Europe. So Europe is failing to show solidarity for vulnerable populations and show, failing to show solidarity amongst European states. And although I was working on a completely different policy area, it was, there was no way to avoid migration, the topic of migration, while being in European institutions. And so I started doing briefings for my MEP and started to attend hearings on this in a more systematic way. And I think the questions that, that drove me at that time was, why do we encounter vulnerable populations with such um, structural violence, right? Sort of these, these very negative responses. And as a consequence, I started doing more work in, in, in volunteering my private life, but then also at university, I started shifting my modules that I picked away from European Union politics, essentially to conflict research and cross-migration, Middle Eastern politics. And this is then also what I proposed for my PhD research to, to work on this intersection between forced migration and conflict research. So very much a connection from real world events happening around you to the research that you're doing now. Um, Pasan, how about you? What was it that prompted your own research in this area? Yeah, I'd say I kind of worked backwards a little bit from my primary interests in a lot of the work I was doing before the PhD, which was around uh, elections and election monitoring. I had arrived in Sri Lanka after quite a long time away and sort of getting to touch with how election administration worked in the country, as well as the broader history of the country. It was quite clear that uh, displacement played a large role in how people participated democratically, but also very broadly how people lived their lives and, and the trajectories their lives took through displacement and uh, what that meant for their narratives as citizens you know, and uh, as people in Sri Lanka. So in that sense, it uh, sort of came together. On a more personal level, I guess my life's been quite defined by migration, um, I'd say voluntary displacement, um, but seeing how other people's lives and uh, especially other Sri Lankans' lives have been shaped by circumstances that are uh, not so voluntary kind of made me a lot more interested in, in displacement and made me want to pursue it in a deeper and academic sense. Uh, and so that's how I'm here. Mm. It's interesting how um, the topics that we study in, in, in academia so often kind of come through a combination of various different bits of our lives that inter intersect in some way and produce a focus on on particular questions. So the two of you are looking at displacement in 
in the particular studies that we're focusing on today, at least, in very different parts of the world. Uh, Sigrid, your work is focusing on Iraq. Hassan, yours is in Sri Lanka. Just before we get into that, Sigrid, it would be good to just explore the extent of displacement around the world today and the degree to which this is something that is affecting people around the world. Do you want to just give us some numbers, some, some evidence on the overall patterns? Yes, I'm very happy to do this. So at the moment, we are experiencing really an age of displacement. So we have constantly growing numbers of displaced people. In fact, the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center has just released their numbers for uh, the last year. So this is the organization capturing uh, numbers of displaced people within their own country. And it is estimated that currently 59.1 million people are displaced within their own country. And to this number, you need to basically add another 26.6 million refugees, another 4.4 million asylum seekers, and then you also have a Venezuelan population. So in total, I'm speaking about, you know, 82.4 million or even more people being currently uh, displaced around the world. So that's more than 1% of the world population. And wow. um, this is an immense scale and it keeps rising. And we're struggling to find solutions in many areas of the world for displaced populations. So it's interesting that you say that it, that it keeps rising. So there's a pattern over time, is there, of this becoming a, a, bigger, a bigger problem? Um, yes, I think in a lot of displacement situations, we, we face the situation that displaced people cannot really re return back home. So we don't really resolve the underlying issues. Uh, an example for this population is certainly Syria. It's one of the countries having a high number of displaced um, persons, and they can't really go back in, into a lot of areas. There's huge destruction. There's still violence going on. And because we cannot really resolve these, these issues, the stock keeps growing. So um, countries like the Democratic Republic of the Congo or Syria really make up the huge proportion of these displaced populations. Mm. And can we understand why this displacement happens? So Sigrid, your, your work is focusing on Iraq. And I think it's fair to say, but correct me if I'm wrong, that displacement in Iraq is very much a product of conflict, which I guess is the sort of the standard kind of displacement or source of displacement that we have in mind. Do you want to say a bit more about just what has led to displacement of people in Iraq? Um, yes, so this Iraq is a typical case for conflict-induced displacement. This is about 80% of the uh, all displaced people in the world that is currently displaced because of conflict. We see, however, rising numbers of more environmental displacement. So in, in Iraq, we see that the armed conflict, so the fight against the Islamic State, has displaced huge populations. For example, the Yazidis around Sinjar have been almost entirely displaced. And... And then, so this is one major reason in Iraq, and then in other countries, you kind of have more communal violence leading to displacement or also criminal gangs or political forms of violence. And in Iraq itself, we have seen these brutal attacks by the Islamic State going into areas and displacing huge amounts of minorities, but also Shia Muslims. And then we had counter uh, offensives against the Islamic State, but they also displaced populations. Uh, so there was a lot of movement in the country, and about 15% of the whole population had to leave their home. 
Mm. And is it that armed actors are, are deliberately trying to push people out of their homes or is it simply that people are trying to escape from conflict by, by leaving their homes? What, what, are the, what are the forces? This is a great question. So in, in early academic research, we usually just looked at the connection between violence and displacement. So as violence goes up, displacement goes up. And increasingly, we look at displacement as a more strategic choice by armed actors. So armed actors sometimes strategically displace populations, so really drive them out of villages and towns. And in other cases, it's more a byproduct. So it's really a mix of different things. And in Iraq, we have definitely seen purposeful the attempt to drive people out of their homes and to really empty out property to give it to other people. And I think the, the work that Passan is doing is also related to more strategic choices around when do people have to leave their homes or not. Yeah, so let's move to Passan and Sri Lanka. And so you look at um, displacement over many decades in, in Sri Lanka and you see displacement happening for a variety of reasons over that period. Do you want to just give us an outline of that, Passan? Yeah, so if you look at the history of displacement and resettlement in Sri Lanka, you can see that these processes have been occurring for a very long time, uh, even before the country became an independent nation state, which uh, happened in 1948 when British colonial rule came to an end. So even throughout colonial rule, the state has been both displacing and resettling people for various purposes. Now, one of the uh, main categories of displacement and resettlement itself is development-induced displacement and resettlement, which is where the state would, would implement very large development projects, so irrigation schemes, schemes for agriculture, and so on. And in order to implement those projects, they would displace people who would live in a particular area and then resettle it with people who are displaced from other areas as well. And in Sri Lanka, uh, this has uh, tended to centre on very large development schemes, which have attempted to irrigate and provide agricultural land in the dry zones of the country, right? which tend to be focused on sort of the central north and, and eastern areas of the country. Now, Sri Lanka also has a very long history of the conflict-induced displacement, uh, but there's an interesting uh, um, interplay between development-induced displacement and resettlement and conflict-induced displacement and resettlement because the, those development projects that I referred to, they kind of fed into and exacerbated the ethnic conflict in the country because of their very uh, particular uh, and specific ethnic dimension, right? So so the Sri Lankan government's uh, ch- uh, strategic choices in where those um, development projects, for example, were taking place would be uh, mainly in northern and eastern areas of the country and those places also happen to be places that have been traditionally populated by the ethnic minority Tamil population whereas uh, the people that were being settled as part of the development projects were mostly Sinhala people who are the ethnic uh, majority in the country from more southern and western areas of the country right and so the demographic shifts which were sponsored right by the state led to uh, ethnic tensions and uh, ethnic conflict between essentially the single state and the Tamil minority uh, increasing, which obviously played a big part in uh, the civil war that was occurring in the country for nearly 30 years. So so Sri Lanka in that sense is um, an interesting case study of both conflict-induced displacement 
uh, as well as development-induced displacement. There are other categories of displacement as well to consider. For example, dis- displacement as a result of natural disasters. So in Sri Lanka, for example, the, the 2004 tsunami caused a huge level of displacement, which also required extensive resettlement efforts. So in, in all those senses, Sri Lanka is a very uh, good case study of the sort of multivariate nature of uh, displacement uh, and also state responses to that. Mm. So when displacement happens as a result of conflict or as a result of natural disaster, then we can very clearly see that it's an involuntary process. When we're talking about displacement through resettlement for development, just how far is that a product of coercion? Presumably governments are, are claiming at least that these are voluntary programs of people moving for new opportunities. How does that work or, or how did it work in Sri Lanka? Yeah, looking at the element of voluntariness or consent in resettlement processes, you can see slight changes in how that's been conceptualized over time. So some of the historic, very early resettlement schemes, the people that were being resettled basically had no choice in terms of firstly being chosen as resettlement subjects, right? But also in terms of where they were eventually resettled to. And so the government would essentially offer them a plot of land and be like, oh, good luck, right? And and in that sense, the government justified uh, that you know, level of coercion by pointing to the supposed benefits of resettlement, right? So poverty alleviation, increasing agricultural output, and so on. And um, there you can also see the intersection between resettlement for development processes and also poverty itself, um, where these uh, resettlement options were being provided to people who were, you know, very poor and who were also landless, right? And so it was a way for the government to sell a particular idea of national development and of poverty alleviation and so on. Now, as uh, these schemes became more and more formalized domestically, but also internationally, the kinds of ideas of consent or voluntariness also evolved. And so you see this particularly in the international context where international development actors, so the United Nations, for example, but also um, international financial institutions such as the World Bank and the IMF, which were heavily funding a lot of development schemes like this, um, especially in Sri Lanka. They began developing very formal sort of guidelines and principles about um, how resettlement was supposed to take place and how it could be evaluated and so on. And in these frameworks, you can find that uh, iterative ideas developing about the levels of consent or voluntariness that people should be provided with in, in resettlement uh, schemes. And, and in that sense, uh, um, the, the, the development of those guidelines mirrors, to a large degree, the formalization of conflict-induced displacement and resettlement networks. And so, especially through the 90s, you'd see that the United Nations were, for example, coming up with guiding principles about um, how resettlement should be uh, undertaken by the government, right? And so um, you can see those that the idea of consent or coercion kind of changing over time, and in uh, in in so much as conflict-induced displacement and resettlement and development-induced displacement and resettlement are different in that the development one is more of a proactive government policy, right? 
compared to the conflict-induced uh, one, which is more reactive. Uh, you can conceptualize those two as being different in that sense. But uh, in terms of the level of voluntariness, it's, you know, overall, it's not one that is particularly high. And, you know, that that degree of uh, lack of consent or coercion built into resettlement processes is also something that, you know, drives a lot of the sort of negative social impacts that are created by resettlement programs that are undertaken by governments. Very interesting. Thank you. Sigrid, let's turn to the effects of displacement. In in your work, you're focusing on impact, particularly on the dynamics of conflict. Do you want to just explain what your hypotheses there are, what what you're kind of looking for, what you're interested in here, and then perhaps move on also to how you go about exploring and testing those hypotheses? Uh, Yes, let me maybe quickly start with the motivation for this. So what we see in the world is that people get displaced uh, due to conflict and then they flee to a location and then they have to flee again because violence catches up with them. And these cycles of violence and displacement, they are a big issue because um, it's really hard to reach the populations if they keep having to to move with humanitarian aid or assistance. And I'm, I'm trying to understand why these repeated cycles of violence emerge And for that, I had an initial look into the academic literature, especially on the reasons why armed actors would attack civilians in the first place. And then there's a whole other literature on conflict contagion that explains why violence spreads from one location to the other. And I'm sort of using these uh, two strains of literature to think about why would armed actors catch sort of catch up with these displaced populations and attack them again. So why would we see that there's a correlation between population movements and conflict going up on the micro level? And then I'm essentially developing this theory of strategic choices by armed actors, uh, who to attack and when. And I'm essentially arguing that there's this tragic effect that when populations move in civil wars, so move through war zones, we will see either violent responses by the territorial ruler or the territorial challenger. Maybe it's best to make an example. So what we've seen in Iraq is, for example, that Sunnis had to, Sunni Arabs had to flee Islamic State-held territory towards uh, Kurdish territory. And we, in some locations, saw that the response to this was that the Kurdish Peshmerga forces responded with violence and tried to push out these Sunni Arabs out of Kurdish territory, essentially in an attempt to keep the firm grip over their own territory. And so I'm basically saying, and I'm trying to show in the paper that territorial rulers can have these incentives to push away population groups that they don't want to have in their territory. And then then I'm equally also thinking about territory challenges, so armed groups that currently don't hold a specific territory. And here I'm basically saying that they often also use violence against displaced populations moving into this territory in order to spoil the local order. Uh, Again, making an example, we've seen that Boko Haram has often attacked IDP camps to create disorder, and we've also seen Assad bombing rebel-held areas in, in, into which IDPs fled, so internally displaced persons fled. So and I'm really trying to disentangle these dynamics. When do challengers and rulers attack moving populations, and when do they become moving targets? 
Moving on to the question, how do I actually do this, right? Yeah, so this is uh, fascinating in your research. You use some, I mean, these are really kind of basic questions that you're getting at, but you use some very advanced uh, political science methodology in order to pursue them. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, um, part of the process is a lot of data collection. So what I essentially did is I first had to think about, okay, which territory was held by which actor over the months of the Islamic State attacks and the violence. So from 2014 to 2018, I essentially coded monthly levels of control in different areas of Iraq. And then I also collected based on news articles from from different sources, event data on where did armed actors attack civilians in general and more specifically displaced populations. And then I collect a lot of additional data on sort of spatial covariates. So how well populated is the area? What is the geography of the area? And I put all of this together in a data frame and then I'm doing a spatial regression analysis. So I'm trying to understand how the number of displaced people and which kind of groups are fleeing. So which ethno-religious groups are fleeing. I'm trying to use this as an explanatory variable to explain incidents of violence. Thank you for explaining that so clearly, because there's there's lots of complicated maths and so on going on behind the scenes there, but that, that you gave us a really nice description. So thank you. And crucial question always, what do you find? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I do find the, uh, the support for this sad fact that displacement often leads to violence, violent responses. So displacement destinations in civil war zones are more likely to see violence. So we have a correlation between displaced people going in and then violence goes up. And I also find that if displaced populations come in and they support the local ruler, they might still get backlash effects because other armed actors then attack these displaced populations. And if you think about this more broadly, this means that these cycles of violence and displacement are really uh, hard to, to sort of end. And we need to think as an international community then about how we can think about putting uh, people at less risk. So how can we find shelter solutions that are more secure for displaced populations? Mm. Mm. Very interesting. Pasan, as you said at the start, you came into this area because you were looking at electoral systems and electoral administration and so on. And you saw that there was a relationship between elections and how those are run and patterns of displacement. Do you want to explain for us what the connections were that you were seeing there and what you're now exploring in your research? Yeah, so because resettlement as a response to displacement involves resettling people in a location that is not their place of origin, that has very clear knock-on effects in terms of election administration, because most electoral systems are heavily influenced by where voters live, right? So where you live determines where you can vote, how you can vote, who you can vote for, so which candidates and parties, and eventually the political representation that you do receive. In terms of uh, election administration itself, you uh, can see how a resettlement, which involves very large shifts in population, right, how that uh, has an impact on 
how electoral boundaries are drawn, um, how voters are apportioned between elect- electoral districts and so on. And so resettlement has clear effect on election administration and, uh, and eventually on uh, election results and democracy itself. So in the Sri Lankan context, this can be seen being played out through some of those development schemes that I mentioned earlier, which involved very large shifts in population, but also eventually as the civil war got underway with the resettlement of people displaced by conflict. Now, when you look at those development schemes particularly, because of their highly ethnicized nature, right, so the government was resettling ethnic majority Sinhala people from the south of the country into northern and eastern areas of the country, which were had been traditionally um, populated by ethnic minority Tamil populations, that uh, had the effect of essentially creating new electoral districts that provided a singular political representation, as well as diluting the sort of Tamil political representation in other electoral districts, right? And this can be very clearly seen in, in election results for uh, under First Past the Post, where in very clearly demarcated electoral uh, districts, you can see singular elect. Uh, electoral districts popping up in in northern and eastern areas, um, as well as the uh, sort of levels of Tamil political representation also being impacted by that. So over time, you'll see that the the levels of ethnic representation uh, changing as a result of these resettlement policies. Now, there's an interesting caveat or dilemma to this in the Sri Lankan context because in the late 70s on, uh, from the late 70s onwards, Sri Lanka switched to a more proportional representation-based electoral system across the country for national elections to the parliament, but also to local body elections. And PR-based systems are meant to be more difficult to manipulate geographically because of the sort of compensatory uh, effects that they provide. And, and so Part of my research is looking at how uh, resettlement has affected election administration under these proportional representation-based systems as well, and whether the ethnicized effects of resettlement and election results that you saw earlier under first past the post, whether they can be seen under the under the PR systems as well, and and what that has meant overall in terms of ethnic representation and, and uh, ethnic political representation, and what that you know obviously means for democracy in the country. And where are you in the research at the moment, Pasan? You're in Colombo. You're speaking to us from Colombo. Are you doing field research on on these points at the moment? Yeah, so at the moment, I'm focused on gathering data to sort of establish the empirical effects of resettlement and election administration policies in Sri Lanka. So looking at archival research, but also things like delimitation reports. I'm also hoping to speak to stakeholders involved in these processes to sort of further corroborate the research. Yeah. So getting your hands dirty with research on the ground. Sigrid, where are you in your own project? So I'm at the end of my PhD, so there's a little bit of time left and I need to write up my research and put it on in a dissertation. So that's one big task. And more concretely, I've talked today a little bit about my research and how armed actors respond to displaced populations. And I'm one of my chapters looks a little bit more into how host communities themselves respond to displacement. And I'm currently working with two brilliant co-authors on a pre-analysis plan to 
to understand a little bit what motivates host communities in the Democratic Republic of the Congo um, to help displaced populations and what in, in turn motivates displaced populations to settle down and integrate into resource constrained host communities in the Kasai region. So this is what I'm currently working on mostly. Fascinating. That's great. So uh, two reasons for optimism there. One is that uh, you were a final year PhD student, but you're still smiling. So uh, (laughs) those listeners who are early in the PhD journey can be reassured that it's possible to uh, still be smiling at the end. But also great that you're kind of moving to the next stage in the causal process, if you like. As you said, your research so far has has shown that we need to understand better how host communities respond. And that's exactly what you're going on to and thinking about how we can cut those cycles of violence triggered by displacement. Great stuff. Well, thank you so much, both Sigrid and Passan. It's been really interesting talking with you about these projects. We've been discussing parts of your PhD dissertations. Alas, those are not publicly available yet, but we'll be watching this space all being well. I'll both see the light of day before too long. Next week, we have a very special episode with our new colleague here at UCL, Professor Mark Steers. Mark's latest book, Out of the Ordinary, How Ordinary Life Inspired a Nation and How It Can Again, is a manifesto for a new, kinder and more rooted politics. And at the end of the month, Mark will be launching the new UCL Policy Lab as its inaugural director. So we will discuss the book, the lab, the nature of politics, the role of social science research in contemporary society and much else besides. It promises to be a fascinating discussion. Remember to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Alan Rennick. This episode was researched by Connor Kelly and produced by James Cleaver. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening. <laughs>